I got to preach. Can I preach? I got to show you something. You see, the resurrection was not just an event. The resurrection was something that Christ did. He walked out of the darkness of the tomb to shine the light of victory upon defeat. In fact, I've changed this up. I want you to hang with me upstairs. John chapter 8, verse 12. John chapter 8, verse 12. Hopefully you'll have it. This is not our narrative for today, so just hold on. I'm going to let you scream in a minute. John chapter 8, verse 12. Here's Jesus making it an I am statement. And he says this. He said, I am the light of the world. Everybody say light. I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Hmm. Hold that thought. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35 or so. No. I'm going to give you a chance to make that a little better. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. How many of you are ready for the infallible, most beautiful, life-giving Word of God? I have a word from God for you today so look at your neighbor and say you better listen he has a word for you I want to look at a word a passage of scripture in Luke chapter 24 that deals with a quintessential problem an incessant struggle that we have in life I want to look at this passage of scripture and see how Jesus dealt with it with two disciples this incessant struggle Because this was one of the very first appearances after the resurrection of Christ. And so I want to take this passage of Scripture and show you how to deal with a struggle that is always there. And that struggle is how life is at war with our hope. Life is at war with our hope. Let me prove it this way. Sometimes you can wake up during the morning and you'll say I want today to be better than yesterday and you'll go out and crank your car and your car will not start you'll say I want my relationships to be better and then you'll have an argument from the pits of hell you've settled I want that house and you go through all of the mortgage stuff and it looks like you're gonna get the house but then all of a sudden there's this little glitch in the mortgage and all of a sudden you're like hopeless you want your child to break that addiction but then they have a relapse and the darkness of hopelessness takes you over it overwhelms you in fact this week I met with one of my mentors and he said you know what I've discovered about peace is peace is something you have to work for moment by moment he said it's fleeting due to situational difficulty it's here one moment and it's gone the next So this morning, I want to show you something in this passage of Scripture. In fact, I just want you to high-five the person around you and just grab a seat. I don't want to read all of the narrative to begin with, but I certainly want to read a few verses in order to establish the context for the narrative. Beginning in verse 28, let me frame for you the backdrop so that you'll have context 
to the circumstances that were unfolding. You see, at this point in Luke, Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, betrayed by Judas, tried, sentenced, placed on a cross, died, placed in a tomb. We know it to be a borrowed tomb because how many of you know if you're only going to be there for three days, you don't need to buy one. Three days has passed and his body is no longer in the tomb. And the disciples understand, we're reading this story in retrospect, but the disciples don't understand what happened to the body. Did someone steal the body? Where is the body? And so all of the disciples have been in Jerusalem, but now they're scattered. And the reason why they're scattered is because they've seen what happened to Jesus and they're fleeing. They're running everywhere because they realize that they just might be killed. Two of the lesser known disciples, two of the 70, Jesus had 12. And then outside of the 12, he had 70 that he would work with on a regular basis. These are two of the 70. They've left Jerusalem and they're fleeing to a place called Emmaus, which is seven miles away. It's a hopeless journey. Because they're talking about what has happened over the last few days. And while they're talking about it, Jesus himself walks up to them and he walks with them on the journey. And they're so overcome by hopelessness that they do not even recognize the Messiah. Now that'll preach. Because sometimes what is happening inside of us keeps us, keeps us from seeing what Jesus is doing around us. Come on, somebody. Sometimes the difficulties of life come against our faith and we enable or allow our fear to outweigh our faith. We allow what is going on in our lives to outweigh the majesty of the Savior. We allow our hopelessness to be overcome by the hope that He's giving to us. But let me tell you something. What's happening in your life can always be overcome by the one who makes things happen. Good Lord have mercy. I feel my preach coming on, Chris. Let me read to you some of the narrative beginning in verse 28. It says this. It says, as they approach the village, I love this. They're walking with Jesus. They're having a conversation with Jesus. Where they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. They're like, Jesus, let me tell you what happened to this Jesus. Well, they didn't call him Jesus because they didn't know he was Jesus. But can you imagine that? They're having a conversation with Jesus about Jesus. And they're like, you kind of look like Jesus, but yet his beard was more full than yours. He didn't have those scars on his hand, but Jesus was so awesome. They're walking and kicking rocks along the road to Emmaus. And look what happens. It says, verse 29, but they urged him strongly. Jesus was going to continue walking on. And they said, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table, verse 30, with them, he took bread and he gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Verse 31, they had an aha moment. It says, then their eyes were opened. It says, then their eyes were opened. In the Greek, that means then their eyes were opened. Prop open your eye and look at your neighbor. Just, just, just like this. Just look at your neighbor like, there you go. In the Greek, the word opens, opened means that now they could see something that they could not see before. Hold on a second. Now they could see what they could not see before. That'll preach. 
How many of you know sometimes we focus on things that keep us from seeing the real thing that Jesus is doing? In other words, we look at our bank account and we see how little we have in our bank account and it keeps us from noticing that God gave us a job that is an absolute blessing to us. What I'm trying to say is sometimes what's going on in us keeps us from seeing what Jesus is doing around us. So they had an aha moment. Their eyes were opened. Aha moments are difficult to describe, but you can be working on a project looking for a solution and cannot find the solution, and then all of a sudden you have an aha moment. And the solution comes out of nowhere. It's like Thomas Edison. He was working on the light bulb. And he worked on the light bulb for years. And he was trying to find the fiber that would capture the light inside of the bulb. And he used over 2,000 different fibers before he had an aha moment. God called me to pastor this church and I had an aha moment. Leaving a business, going into the ministry, I had an aha moment because I was surrounded by the insecurity of inability, but God said, I am with you. Aha moments. You've had aha moments in your life. What I've discovered about aha moments is the fact that an aha moment is not just a discovery process. But an aha moment can also be when difficulty gives way to destiny. Hmm. In fact, let me show you something. That's good. You ought to write that down. But let me show you the rest of this. It says, verse 31, Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. I, I would love to have seen that. The moment that they recognized him, he's gone. Verse 32, it says, They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scripture to us? Were not our hearts burning within us? Did we not become enlightened when we walked around with this man, the Messiah? They had an aha moment. So I began to think, how can I illustrate this moment to you? So I need to be a little transparent with you and make a confession. I am not a handyman. My wife would say amen to that. I'm not a handyman. I can fix some things, just not all things. I'd rather pay someone else to fix it to make sure that it's right. In fact, when I was a kid, my dad would say, Son, you can tear up a steel ball with a rubber hammer. And recently, one of my sons and I were working outside trying to fix something, and night fell. <laughs> and I said to my boy, as I was trying to place the screwdriver on the head of the screw, and I could not find it, I, said, I looked at him and said, boy, turn on your iPhone and put, put some light on it. Shine some light on it. My light's flashing. Shine some light on it. Everybody, turn on your lights. Come on, everybody, turn on your lights. Here we go. Somebody ought to take a picture of that. Everybody, turn on your lights. Come on. If you didn't get a light, you can get one on the way out. I said, boys, shine some light on it. Shine some light on the subject. We are the world. We are the children. <laughs> Shine some light on the scene. And then it hit me. 
hold on, it hit me, it hit me, it dawned on me. The Spirit dropped this in my lap. The disciples had an aha moment. You can turn the lights back on, you can turn yours off, you're distracting me. The disciples, they had this aha moment. But their aha moment was not the fact that they recognized the Messiah. Their aha moment was the fact that they recognized that Jesus never left them. From the moment that they left Jerusalem all the way down the hopeless road, they realized all the way to Emmaus that Jesus never left their side. They realized that he was with them. He was for them. They understood that it did not matter what happened in their lives and he would never leave them. They must have understood the Old Testament word in Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 6 where it says, Do not be afraid for I am with you I will never leave you nor forsake you you're not hearing what I'm throwing you need to grab a hold of this because what he was saying to us in this passage of scripture is that the great I am is with us he is for us when we're down and out there he is when we're burdened there he is when we're in discomfort there he is when we're discouraged there he is when we're depressed there he is when we're tired he is our rest when we're hopeless he is our hope when we're lost he is our rescue come on somebody Body, give him praise up in this place. And that's how, that's how David could write the 23rd Psalm. That's how David, when he was walking the road of hopelessness, could write, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with me. Good Lord, have mercy. You see, what I'm trying to say is you may be walking the road from Jerusalem, that hopeless road to Emmaus, but God is with you. He is for you. He will never leave you. And John chapter 8, verse 12 says that he is the light. And if you are in him, you will never walk in darkness. What I'm trying to say to you today is that you need to understand you've got to shine some light on it. Look at your neighbor and say, you've got to shine some light on it. Good God, I feel like preaching today. You see, you need to understand that God will give you an aha moment. But that aha moment generally comes after you walk through a field of difficulty. Because before there could be a resurrection, there was a crucifixion. Mm. He'll give you a destiny. But that destiny is usually preceded by difficulty. You see, the resurrection, Jesus walked out of a tomb not just for one event. But he walked out of a tomb so that you would have a resurrection state of mind. He walked out of the tomb so that the light of his word could shine on the darkness of your hopelessness. And therefore, you'll see which way you need to walk. Mm. Let me take you back to the narrative. Go back with me to the narrative. For the sake of time, I just want to fly through some things with you. I want to look at the narrative in a little more specificity. Beginning in verse 13. If you're there, say, I'm there. Verse 13, I need you to understand the state of mind that these two disciples were in. Verse 13 says this, Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. 
They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas said, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there these days? What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth? He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all of the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him, verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that, he had, that they had seen a vision of angels who had said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see Jesus. Luke, the physician, the gospel writer, is giving us a description here. He tells us that these two disciples knew a lot about Jesus. They knew who Jesus was. They knew where Jesus was from. They knew that Jesus was a prophet They knew that Jesus was powerful in both word and deed, which meant he did and performed miracles. They had seen that. They knew that he was also supposed to redeem Israel. They knew that he had been crucified, and now they know that he's no longer in a tomb. They had a lot of knowledge of Jesus, about Jesus. But yet, verse 21 shows us the status of their hearts. The status of their hearts outweighed their knowledge of their Messiah. Verse 21 says this. It says, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But we had hoped. You see, the condition of their heart, their hopelessness in their heart was obscuring their view of the Messiah. We had hoped. We had been hanging out with Christ for three years and we had hoped he was the one we had hoped. Their hope is now in past tense. Only three days has passed. The body is gone. We had hoped. We had hoped. Many of you are walking that road. I need you to listen to me this morning. Many of you are walking the road of Emmaus. You had hope. But your hope's in past tense. I had hoped this would not be this way. I had hoped that my marriage would be good, but it's not. I had hoped that my career would be great, but it's not. I had hoped that my kids would be better, but they're not. See, sometimes what we know about Jesus seems to be overshadowed by what we see. They knew who he was. They knew where he was from. They knew that he was the Savior. They knew that he was supposed to redeem Israel, but we had hoped. Sometimes what we know about Christ is overshadowed by what we see. We had hoped, so we left Jerusalem and we ran to Emmaus. We had hoped. It's like you can come into church and you can be around this atmosphere and you have hope. 
And you go to work on Monday and Tuesday, and by the time you get to Wednesday, the it in your life has sucked the hope out of you. That occupational it, that relational it, that financial it has been sucked out of you, and your hope was up here, and now it's down here. And if we're honest with ourselves, that's the way life seems to be at times. Some days we have hope that's way up here, and other days our hope is way down here. Some days we're like, woo, sister! I got the best job in all the world, sister. That's what I'm talking about, Z-snap. And then you go to work and you're like, ah, reverse Z snap. I hate my boss and my job. And you're like, oh, life's good. Life's so good. Ah, you don't just, girl, you wait till you see me at church tomorrow. I got a new dress. Woo! And it looks good. And you get up on Easter morning and the dress is too tight. And you're like, ah, I know not a single one of you had that issue this morning. But you go from, yeah, celebrating to, uh, I had hoped, and your hope is in the past tense. Then we begin to magnify other things rather than God. We place our hope in other things like your bank account. And you're like, well, man, if I can just end up the month with this much money in my bank account, everything's going to be good. And you get to the end of the month and your month robbed your money. And you're like, I had hoped. This past week, I, I went online to one of those, it's, it's kind of, I guess it's kind of new. It's the first time I've seen it, but they're all over the place. It's this retirement calculator. Have you seen it? So I, I went to this retirement calculator and I put in all of my stuff, all of my current conditions to find out at what age I could retire with certain standards, certain, certain living standards. And How many of you know life expectancy is 85 years old? My retirement date is at the right young age of 84. (laughs) We place our hope in things that cannot bring fulfillment. We place our hope in cars. We place our hope in houses. We place our hope in people. We place our hope in this, that, or the other. And then those things tend to let us down. We had hoped. You hoped your marriage would be good but it's not you hope that your relationships would be good but they're not you hope that your kids would be good but they're not you hope that your finances would be great but they're not and I know Jesus is powerful in word and deed but I don't see it and I know Jesus loves me but I don't feel it and I know Jesus saves but yet I feel lost I'm walking a road from Jerusalem which was my destiny to Emmaus because I'm hopeless What is strange about this story to me is that these two individuals are disciples who have been with Jesus for three and a half years. And for three and a half years, Jesus has spoken into their lives. For three and a half years, he has prepared them for this day. For three and a half years, he told them that this day would come. I will be be crucified. I will be betrayed. But on the third day, I will arise. But what is strange is once it happened, they're surprised. We had hoped. 
For three years, he told them this was going to happen, but now they're shocked. They're even more shocked that the body is gone. They're talking to Jesus. They don't even know that it's Jesus, and they're like, man, you kind of look like him, but man, he was so cool. He was awesome. Man, he was off the chain. He could do miracles. They were incredible, but, 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 but we had hoped. We had hoped. But then, the more that I thought about them, I thought about us. And we really can't give them a hard time because I think we fall prey to the same thing because John chapter 16 verse 33 Jesus said in this world you will have trouble but take heart because I have overcome this world but at the first sign of trouble we act surprised we had hoped (laughs) don't shout me down when I'm preaching good We had hoped it would be different. We had hoped that he would show up. We had hoped. We had hoped. We had hoped. Listen, let me tell you something. I came to announce to you that faith, all you need is a little bit of faith. The Bible says faith is the substance of things hoped for. With the evidence not seen, all you need is a little bit of faith. That little bit of faith will overcome that fear in your life and you'll rise up above those problems and the it of difficulty cannot rob your destiny. The it of difficulty was there. They left Jerusalem and they were walking to Emmaus and God allowed them the situational difficulty in their lives to build up the faith on the inside because God wants to do something in you before he can do something through you. So he'll do this thing in you by building up your faith, walking with you on a road that you wish that you had not been on in that hopeless state because he'll cause your faith to come alive. After all, who is my light and my salvation? He is in whom shall I trust in him but we had hoped but we hoped we we had hoped we had hoped here are these two dudes allowing their emotions to rob their destiny sometimes we allow our emotions to rob our destiny we had hoped We've got to have some emotional control. Listen to me. I want you to hear this. We've got to have some emotional control. We cannot allow the enemy to manipulate our emotions. Therefore, we miss our destiny. And so many times we allow short-term problems to affect us in the long term. In other words, whatever we're going through in the short term, we make decisions that ultimately affect our long term. We had hoped... And so we run into difficulty, and at the first sign of difficulty, we throw our hands in the air and we say, I can't take it anymore, it's just too much. (laughs) We had hoped. Listen, can I tell you something? Emotions will rob your commitment because they were supposed to be in Jerusalem. But now they've left and gone to Emmaus because we better flee because we might die too. Emotions will will rob your commitment. And emotions are also the enemy to your destiny. Listen to me. Think about it. Just before David fought and defeated Goliath, he walked out on the battlefield and David's oldest brother walked up to him and he said, boy, what are you doing here? You little runt, why are you here? You're supposed to be back on the hillside keeping daddy's sheep and it's only a few sheep and you're not even good at that. That's his older 
brother, his oldest brother, saying, man, you're worthless. Had David allowed his emotions to get away from him, he would have missed his destiny of defeating Goliath on the battlefield. Listen, let me tell you something. Emotions are a good thing. It's God gives us emotions. I'm glad God gave me feelings. I'm glad he gave me feelings. I'm supposed to use those feelings, though, to accomplish his purpose. I'm supposed to use the passion that he's given me to accomplish his purpose. I'm glad he gave me feelings. Because how bad would it be to come up on this stage after the praise team rocks it out and I walk up and say, if you would please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verse 13 through 35. But you don't have to turn there if you don't want. If you'd like, take a nap. It'd be okay. After all, that's what some people do in church. How would that be? No, but sometimes God puts some passion in me so that I can shout when I need to shout the message of God at you so that you can hear it loud and clear. I'm glad he gave me feelings. I'm glad he gave me emotions. But some of you don't have emotions. Rather, your emotions have you. Somebody said, oh, snap. (laughs) But rather, your emotions have you. You see, God gave you passion so that you could accomplish your purpose. But some of you are allowing your emotions to take you away from the commitment that you once made. Whew, isn't it quiet in God's house? Mm. You see, you can use your emotions in the wrong way. You see, I can come in here and I can shout. I can say, woo, and God good, the Bible says. But with that same passion, I can get in the car and I can use those emotions in the wrong way if somebody cuts me off in traffic. And God said, I want me to punch you in the face. <laughs> So I'm thinking about this passage of Scripture, verse 14. I skipped this, but I'm going to go back and grab it. Is that okay? Verse 14, you have these two guys walking, it says, and they're talking about the events of the day. They're talking about everything that happened. You know what I've noticed? We'll tend to hang out with people who will take up residence in our hopelessness. We don't need to take up resonance with people in our hopelessness we need people who will come alongside of us in their faith and speak words of life into us people who will come along and undergird you people who will take a licking and keep on ticking people who will take some light and shine it on you come on shine your light come on and rise up and praise him you need some people who will speak faith into you that's what you need don't take up residence with those people who are negative come on and shine some light shine some light shine some light on it I told my mama today I'd wear a coat and I'm regretting it verse 25 and following let me show you for the sake of time we got to move we have another service he said to them 
How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Verse 26, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? They don't know. They don't know who they're talking to. They still, the light has not turned on. Verse 27, it says, and beginning with Moses, circle Moses. Circle that in your Bibles. Moses. Everybody say Moses. We'll come back to that in a moment. And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of the scripture concerning himself. So he's having a conversation with them about himself. He goes all the way back to Genesis and he walks them through all of the books of the Old Testament that point to him. The light still hasn't turned on. Verse 28, it says, And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they argued and urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened. <laughs> Hold on. They were like, Oh, we've seen, we've seen this before. This looks familiar. I remember when Jesus fed the 5,000 and he lifted the bread up and he gave thanks and he broke it. I remembered when we were hanging out with Jesus. I remembered when he would break bread around the table and he would give thanks. And the scene became familiar. They began to recognize something. But I think there's some ironic symbolism here. Because when it said that he broke bread, my mind went to John chapter 6, verse 35. Can I teach for a moment? John chapter 6, verse 35. Put it up for me if you would. John 6, 35. I don't even know if I gave it to you, but I hope I did. John 6, 35. Jesus makes the very first of seven I am statements. He says this. He says, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He's breaking bread. The disciples see him breaking bread, and all of a sudden their minds go to him saying, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Let me tell you why Jesus said this. Because there were 5,000 people who were following Jesus because he had just fed them. And when he fed them bread, they followed him around the lake and they said, give us some more bread. And he said, well, the only reason why you're following me is because of what I can do for you, not because of who I am. He said, you're following me because I can put bread in your belly. You're following me for the physical things. You're not following me for the spiritual things. So what Jesus did was he turned their eyes to the spiritual things. He said, if you're looking for something materialistic to meet your need, it never will. If you're looking for something in the material world that will bring you hope, it never will. And when the problems of life come against you, if you have not taken of the bread of life, you will always be overrun by the problems of life. And the disciples look at one another once he, they see him break the bread and they remember he's the bread of life and we should have been in Jerusalem. That was our destiny, but we've run to Emmaus. We've allowed our hopelessness to knock us off course. We should have been focused upon the bread of life. They remember, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. But hold on a second. There's more symbolism here. Jesus, when he said, I am, he was pointing back to a testimony of God and Moses in the Old Testament. When Moses was standing before the burning bush and he said to God, God, I cannot go and tell the Pharaoh to let my people go. But if I do go, who am, who am I saying sent me? And he said, I am. 
He said, I am. I am ascending you. I am the bread of life. I am ascending you. I am the bread of life. I am ascending you. I am greater than anything in your life. I am greater than any problem. You may not have, but I am. You may not be, but I am. And what I am, you are. You may not have received from your parents everything that you need, but I am. You may not have everything that you want, but I am. I am your hope. I am your comfort. I am your resurrection. I am your wisdom. I am your prosperity. I am your encouragement. I am your forgiveness. Is somebody going to get up on their feet and give God glory in this place because I am just remain standing I'm going to close this thing down but you got to see this you got to see this the first time that I saw this and really thought about this was at 3.30 in the morning this morning I want you to see verse 32. They ask each other after he left their sight, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Verse 33, it says, so they got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem. Hold on a second. That hopeless road that they walked down from Jerusalem to Emmaus, now they're running back. It says they left at once. Hold on, you got to see why. They left at once. They ran back to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true. It is true. It is true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread it is true they said it is true he has risen we saw him crucified we saw him placed in a tomb and now we saw him the resurrection is true it's greater it's not a state of mind i mean it is a state of mind it's not just a moment in time but it enables me to overcome what comes against me but that's not what i saw at 3 30 in the morning are you ready to see what i saw you got to see this. You got to see it. It says, verse 34, you remember when they were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, they were complaining about everything that had happened. And we had hoped. We We had hoped. And they started listing the facts. He was supposed to be the redeemer of Israel. He was powerful in word and deed. He was a prophet of God. He was from God himself. He was crucified. He was placed in a tomb. But now his body is missing. We had hoped. How many of you know sometimes the facts in life are overwhelming? We had hoped. We had hoped. We had hoped. We had hoped. But look, verse 34 says... But after they ran back from Emmaus to Jerusalem, after they realized, hold on a second, Emmaus is not our destiny, Jerusalem is. Look what they carried back with them. It is true. They didn't carry the facts. They carried the truth. The truth is his resurrection is greater. The truth is it's greater than your facts. The truth is his resurrection is more powerful than your problems, more powerful than your difficulty. The truth of who he is is greater than the facts in your life. They carried back the truth they overcame the facts because the resurrection is true